the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, is the pandemic finally over? And then what would you do with $473 million? How do we respond to deconstructors? And later, what is love? You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, happy Thursday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today, Aubrey. It's like the middle of winter. I told you I spent the night out at a baseball game, my son's game yesterday, in a winter coat and winter gloves and a winter jacket and still froze. Uh, I'm I'm I I don't know what to make of what's going on around uh, you know, us right now. Uh, you know, before you and I went on air, you heard me humming. I was humming Christmas tunes, <laughs> yes, and I think were. it's because I think it's because it's freezing outside. So my my body and my soul are like, oh, it must be Christmas time. You have to survive by singing, you know, holiday classics, or else you'll die in the Chicago spring. It's like you feel it's like your body is off right now. So you like you're going to be like, oh, we put our big Christmas tree up again. Yeah, like, exactly. It's time make to like sense. start adding things to the Amazon shopping. <laughs> <laughs> it is crazy. So hopefully you're keeping warm and enjoying your week again on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, glad to have you with us. All right, uh, Aubrey, Dr. Fauci. We haven't talked about Dr. Fauci, Fauci. in a long time. It he's, is, a, he's a polemic figure. It People is really weird. Like, Fauci. I can remember like when the pandemic first started. Everybody loved Dr. Fauci, right? Like it oh, was. Oh yeah, like, it was like the Fauci show. Like you're gonna go hear what he has to I know. say. I remember uh-huh. saying on these airwaves to Ian Simpkins, my co-host back then. I remember saying to him, "I just know. I don't know what to believe, but I know when Dr. Fauci says it, then I believe it." <laughs> <laughs> you also know that like there there became a whole thing like uh, like fangirls over him. Like he's girl women were like attracted to him, yes. and like it, that became a whole. He became like a celebrity icon, and I was like. I mean, Fauci? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Fauci? The same, like, Dr. Dr. Fauci? That's but, what you're talking about? But you then, think you're attracted to? Then, as what happens in our society, and you mentioned this before, he became a polarizing figure. Some yes, people continued to, to treat his words as gospel. Yeah. And other people decided to treat his words as anti-gospel. <laughs> where, now, where did you go since you were so you were pro-Fauci? Where did you turn? I think I got um, much more, as what happens a lot in my life, I got a lot more measured going, okay, I, I, yeah. uh, I'll put it this way. I've never been one of these conspiracy theorists at all who believes he has some ulterior motive. Right, And right. yet I've also gotten to the point of going, he's completely fallible and has been wrong through yeah. this at times. Yeah. And so yeah. I know measure doesn't work very well in our culture, but I've it I've tend to be I like actually I actually think that's like the wise godly response. So well like, done. When people tell me like there, there's this huge government conspiracy, I go, Nope. And when yep, people that's are like me too. I'm like, no, there's not. When people are like, Dr. Fauci said it, it must be true. I'm like, nope. Right. <laughs> Just there we go. It's and not so true. <laughs> But he said something yesterday or on Tuesday, Aubrey, that got me very excited. Mm, uh, let's doc- hear it. Dr. Fauci expressed optimism about the state of the pandemic. I'm reading from NBC News here. He says this. He said this on PBS's News Hour. He said, we are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic stage. We are wow. now trans- We are now transitioning, not there yet, but transitioning, he said, to more of an uh endemicity uh, like an endemic yeah. uh, where the level of infection is low enough that people are starting to learn how to live with the virus still protecting themselves by vaccinations by the availability of antivirals and testing uh, but he says we're out of the acute component of the pandemic phase and into the control phase as often happens in the, our world Aubrey he got a lot of pushback and walked that back a little bit yesterday okay uh, but when I read that I said 
A, I feel that. I feel like we yeah. are out of this. And I know I yeah. want to be very careful. There are still people dying. You were telling me of a friend of yours who had a loved one uh, possibly pa- yesterday. passed no, away. No, she died yesterday okay. from COVID. Yeah. So this is still a big deal. Yeah. But I feel like in the general sense, in the um, just how we live our day-to-day lives, this kind of feels like the reality. But to hear... Uh, Dr. Fauci, who's been very cautious, I would mm-hmm. suggest rightfully so, for his position mm-hmm. through this, say mm-hmm. that we are, quote unquote, not in the active pandemic. We're kind of out of the pandemic. Yeah. That's a huge statement, don't you think? Oh, I think it's a massive statement. And I, I agree. Like, e- even though a, a good friend of mine lost a family member from COVID yesterday, and I don't want people to go, well, no, was I it get of you. COVID or from COVID? No, she got COVID and she died. I mean, it's terrible. We're not hearing those stories like we were. Like that was, I think, part of the shock, not only the grief of this loss that they're experiencing as a family, but also, wait, what? COVID's not supposed to kill anybody anymore. Like, and of course there are those cases, but those, at at least what it seems like is those are the outliers compared to what it used to be in 2020. And so I am devastatingly sad for them and Mm -hmm, for, you know, mm -hmm. you guys know we have our own own loss of COVID Kevin's mother, own loss from COVID Kevin's mother. But all that to say that feels very hopeful and mm-hmm. I think accurate because most of the people I know that have COVID or are getting COVID now, you know, they're sick for a week and it's not fun. It does seem to spread still and people can re-get it, but they're generally okay. And so yeah. I love, I mean, I'm very hopeful that this is moving into the controlled moment or an endemic moment rather than a pandemic that just feels like okay we can breathe we can move forward we can i also feel like there's a body of experience now that Mm. let's say there is some type of crazy freak virus that comes again which i pray jesus name it doesn't but we can go okay we know that this is going to take a few years to move through. It's going to be devastating. It's going to be hard, but we will get to a control state again. Yeah, yeah. And and hopefully this is just um, all goodness moving forward, at least as far as COVID That's is concerned. That's what we hope. Dr. Yeah. Fauci had previously described five phases of the pandemic. The first was a full-blown pandemic where we spent most of the last two years. The mm-hmm. second being deceleration and the third being control which indicates that the virus is becoming endemic in the population. That's what he says we're part of now. The next two phases are elimination and eradication. Did you see, though, the stat the other day? They ran a test, uh, some sort of testing uh, on kids that Mm. that indicated they didn't check. They checked for antibodies different than the vaccination. So basically indicate indicative that kids have had some form of covid or whatever. And they found they found antibodies in 75 percent of the kids that they tested, suggesting Whoa. that the vast majority of our children uh, have had it. And we didn't even know. And we didn't even know. Like, there's going to be books upon wow. books upon books being written about. Oh, we didn't know this now. And I know there's lots of people conspiracy theory. I get it. But I'm oh, like, yeah. I heard that and I was just blown away and then suddenly, yeah, that's a large number i mean that's shocking it's crazy here. it's crazy i was out i went and visited wow. somebody from our church who's now in a nursing home the other day uh, and we had to wear uh they i got in there and they they had all the safety measures including you had to wear a mask and it like mm-hmm. i was like oh the, oh oh yes yeah, obviously like just ready for obviously it. i will do this but I, she was yes. like oh could you please put a mask on and i was like oh, oh. We, oh, yes, that makes total sense of where I am, but it wasn't even in my conscience anymore wow. to be like, I have to put a mask on. So wow. ha- let me ask you, let's just end with this. Like, yeah. this is, sounds like the weirdest question to ask. How mm-hmm. has the pandemic changed you? How has it changed us as a culture? Can maybe one mm-hmm. or two things that when you look back years from now and somebody talks mm-hmm. about pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, what do you think mm-hmm. you're going to talk about? I think there'll be the positives and the negatives. Mm -hmm. Like the positive thing is I do think for a while anyway, this changed pretty quickly, but for a while anyway, I think we really came together as a Mm -hmm. nation, like against a common enemy. And we were like cheering on our nurses. We were cheering on our doctors. We were cheering on all of the frontline workers and really, I think valuing like what it meant to like be a, a like one nation again united against a common enemy, yeah. and 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 of course, then you and I have even talked about Brian those beautiful times as families that you know you all of a sudden you're thrust together like you never have without any distractions, and so you're playing board games.
games again and you're finding creative ways to spend your time together. My mom would call my kids and read Charlotte's Web oh, to them awesome. once a week. You know, like and then I, you know, but then I do think like the devastating like divisiveness that happens so quickly, mm-hmm. the polarization that happens so quickly. I think I'm going to look back on that and just sort of think, wow, did we learn to be selfless? Did we learn to put the other person first? Right. I don't know if we did. And I hope there are some lessons that can come out of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think for, for me, I think I, I would agree with all that you said. I would also say that post-pandemic, the lack of control, uh, the, mm. la- uh, the mirage of control, right? Think mm. about – we as Americans, we often think I can control everything yeah, in right. my life. I've, I, right. And I will never forget the first weeks of the pandemic being like – I, I, I'm just having to be reactive. I can't control anything. Like you can't yeah. stop a virus or at that point we were all on board with the, you know, with the lockdowns right. and this, that, and just right. being like, Oh, my church can't be, Oh, uh, what's going on. And I think, uh, that was that. So hopefully Dr. Fauci is right that we are into this next stage. We want to be cognizant. As you said, there are still individuals really up against it, really struggling, really suffering great loss. And we mm-hmm. want to pray for those people, but Culturally speaking, church speaking, all this, hopefully uh, this is in our rearview mirror increasingly, yeah. and we yeah. look forward to that. All right, Aubrey, the Powerball jackpot, $473.1 million, an important Woo! point one, uh, was the drawing last night. And the numbers came out 11, 36, 61, 62, 68, with a Powerball number of four. I would have thought, as I told you off air, that there would have been multiple. This was six numbers. You would think there's multiple. But as I told you before we went to break, one ticket was sold nationwide with those numbers. And it was sold in Gilbert, Arizona, which means that one person has won the $473.1 million jackpot. Unbelievable. All right, Aubrey, you have a choice here, first of all. The ticket holder can choose between an estimated annuity of $473.1 million paid in 30 graduated payments over 29 wow. years or a lump sum of $283.3 million. Both of these options are before taxes. So you're going to get a big tax bill out of this. Okay. What would you choose? Would you go with the 30 years of payments or would you say, oh. give it all to me now? I... Oh, man. Oh, man. If only I actually had this choice in real life. <laughs> there are two good choices, right? I think I'd go 30 years of payments. I think honestly. I would, too. Yeah, because then I, I could just depend on it, like space it out. I think so, Know too. you have this, like, steady income, it kind of budget accordingly, but still it's enough money that, like, there's big splurges you can do, right? Like, if I got it all at once, I would just, I think I would just be like, I'm buying this and that and that. And so I, it's almost like I don't trust myself. So I'd rather have it paced That's out. Right. That's the, what you do? The odds of being the winner, by the way, one in 292 million. That is the odds. Uh, wow. I think I would do what you just said there, too. There's, yeah. there's that certainty of going, oh, I'm getting multiple millions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, not even multiple, tens and 15 yeah. million dollars a year for the next 30 yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, you know, you get your tax out of that. Uh, all right. You get that. What's uh, what is the first thing you are doing with it? We okay. already know you're selfish. We learned this last I week. Know, so go ahead. I know. So, OK. In, like, you know, I think I told you yesterday the uh, the alternator in Kevin's car went out. So I would pay off some car bills. I might buy us a new car. But let's say after you got done with the boring, like, debt you have to pay okay <laughs> i i mean there's no doubt in my mind i'd be buying a disney vacation home like it's so ridiculous my husband would not be for it but i'd be like that's fine we'll throw a couple mil at a colorado home for you too <laughs> so we would have both for don't sure. you just wish you had the ability to be like i'll throw a couple mil <laughs> throw a couple here's mil. what i'm picturing and then, and then you know and that's after i'm like saving children and like hungry people well, yes yes of course yeah. of course yeah. what about I'd, you i'd be calling food for the poor tomorrow hey uh <laughs> I just love the idea of you standing there in a press conference with a large check. You know, you've got that big check. It says Aubrey Sampson's name. And they're like, some reporter raises his or her hand. And they're like, "Uh, Mrs. Sampson, Miss Aubrey, Aubrey, what are you going to do first? I'm going to pay off my alternator. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, finally, I'm going to pay off that car debt. (laughs) There would be like this silence, people looking around being like, and then what would you do? (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm gonna cover the alternator. I was. I got, I got one more class in grad school. I'm gonna get that it, done. It's so true. There, people would be like, uh, "Man, kidding, you could buy grad school right now." Right. I would travel. I would travel yeah. and travel and travel. Yeah. I would bless people in my life, like family members. Yeah. Uh, but Wouldn't you'd have to be fun? careful. You read of like athletes and and uh, Hollywood celebrities uh-huh. who make this kind of money, right? Yeah. And then they blow it. They've got no money at the end because they're right? buying you this do card. Hear, like lottery ticket winners especially blow yes, it quickly. Because yes. generally they buy alternators for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> alternator for you, for you, for you. You get an alternator. You get an alternator. Yeah, you get an alternator. Uh, That's so funny. Good times. Good times. Uh, yeah. So anyway, congratulations. It will be interesting. I think one of the trends these days also is for people not to reveal themselves for the reasons you said. Oh, because okay. people come people out of the them. woodwork. People start asking them for money. Yeah. Uh, so I do think you'll often hear months will go by before anybody claims it because – they want to take a deep breath. They want to go talk mm. to a lawyer. They want to get all their affairs it's in order. Pretty smart. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I would think it'd be hard to hide from the people closest to you. Like, right? People are like Aubrey. I noticed you got three new alternators in your car. In your three cars. <laughs> like, how did that happen? How could you afford that? <laughs> what a luxurious life you're living. All right. So let oh, me t- be fun. Let me make a big right turn and talk okay. about uh, some more statistics. These are church related. Uh, there is a new report out that says the number of active uh, PC USA members. So that's uh, the Presbyterian Church, and that's the more okay. liberal, progressive wing of the Presbyterian Church. Number of PC USA members and ministers and churches drastically fell in 2021. From 2020 to 2021, uh, the number of congregations dropped from 8,925 to 8,813. Active membership dropped uh, by a few, uh, by like uh, 10,000, 15,000 wow. people. Oh, no, wow. I did my math wrong. That's 150,000 people. Uh, so shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. The numbers go on. And a lot of people are asking, why is that specifically in the Presbyterian Church? And most people are pointing to the fact that they've gone really progressive. They've gone really uh, in some struggling ways. And so that's causing them to shrink. But I also think this is just a sign of the times. My guess is careful, careful mocking them or pointing out, lest it be your denomination or your church as well. If you're like me, though, Aubrey, for many reasons, these numbers don't surprise me at all. Yeah, I mean, part of the, you know, part of the drop is like just exactly what you said. Well, this is true in a lot of denominations. This is true in all of our churches. So let's not get a little bit holier than now. But what's interesting to me, Brian, this reminds me of, do you remember a few years ago when the Methodist church was voting on their like LGBTQ Mm -hmm, stance mm -hmm. and everyone expected them to uh, be affirming but the Methodist Church, especially worldwide, was like, no, we are not ready for that. Right. And so people were shocked that that vote was sort of cast down. And then I believe there were some splits from that denominationally. So what's interesting to me is like culturally, though, we are going more progressive, more open and affirming. It seems like church folks, especially around the globe, like are not some are, mm-hmm. but the majority still isn't there yet and doesn't necessarily want a progressive church. Now, I know I'm not I, I can't speak for everyone. I know generally yeah. generationally this is changing. But when we look at like the church around the world, I, I still don't think the the faithful God people are as progressive as we might think they are. Yeah. as The world is certainly uh, to your point. This this uh, article about the Presbyterian Church ends this way. The PCUSA, which is the largest Presbyterian denomination in the country, has lost a substantial number of members and congregations over recent years due to its acceptance of same sex marriage and the hmm. order ordination of LGBTQ clergy so i think you're you're right onto it i mean i do think when you make social stands as a denomination or as a church uh that many people would say are drifting away from what they believe scripture says you're going to attract some people but you're really going to pay the consequences with a lot of people and i think we see that going on but i also think we're going to see these numbers post pandemic become somewhat normative and and we're going to have to keep our eyes on that 
Aubrey, I have two things for you before we uh, go spend some time at the social media water cooler. The first is it's really good to have a smart producer. Our executive producer, Keith Conrad, came on. You know what he told us? Well, you were there, oh, so of right. course you know. Uh, per our our lottery conversation we just had, you and I both said we would take like the annuity over years where it's coming. He told us, though, that, that if you die, that goes away. You can't pass that on to your family. That mm. changes my answer. I'm yes. taking the lump sum simply so I can pass it on to my family. Yeah, you get a good investment person, so it continues to working. Does that change? Does, does Keith's information to us change? Uh, have you learned today and changed your mind? Yes. Thank you, Keith, for that information. Yeah. So I think I knowing that I would take the lump sum, but yes. I think I would put I would give it to like a financial person and tell them, please just pay me like a trust or yes. some situation where please just pay me once a month or once yes. a year like I agree. I, for my own accountability i need it spaced out but absolutely if you can't pass it on to your kids then definitely you want to get it i don't want front. the stinking government taking what i want what i won by <laughs> picking those numbers my hard-earned money <laughs> yep 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 so anyway thank you for that information all right aubrey explain the social media water cooler to our to our listening yes. audience yes Yes, the social media water cooler is. So, you know, back in the day when the we'd day. say, hey, hang it out by the water cooler, like in an office scenario where you'd go by the water cooler and you'd talk about the gossip of the day or what you watched on TV last night or the game or, you know, what's happening in the office. So we've we've taken that concept and we've moved it online and we've called it the social media water cooler, mm-hmm. where basically we are throwing a question your way each and every week. And they're typically fun questions. They can go a little bit deep, as you'll see this week, to find out just, you know, just to have a conversation. We're having a water cooler conversation online. And so our question this week, which, Brian, you and I both said we thought would be, you know, maybe a little more lighthearted. It Mm -hmm. actually ended up being pretty meaningful for people. But the question was, share a song that you associate with a life event but it cannot be a wedding. What is it and why? I just like that it cannot be a wedding. Cannot be a wedding. And so there were lots of fun answers, but Brian, maybe, do you have one before we dive into what people said? So my first one was going to be, um, but then I realized it had to do with a wedding. Like um, Carrie and I, you Uh, know, when you're younger, especially, I'm sure you and Kevin had your songs, right? So yes. Uh, you know, Carrie and I, when we started dating, like Shania Twain was really big mm. like, from this moment and you're still the one. And and so I <laughs> hear those songs now and I still go back to when we were dating, engaged uh, and even early married. But but I feel like that's cheating. Like, I feel like that's kind of under the yeah, umbrella kind of, in the wedding. Of, yeah. of the wedding. And so let me share this one. I believe I've and see you told me that most of our people got really serious. I am yeah. not you. Hopefully okay. you all know this. I go to the social media water cooler. I want to laugh. I want to laugh. Things. Yeah, I believe. Have I told you before that I spent Two and a half, three years, probably two to three years of my high school life working at the local video store. Uh, that wait, we have talked about this because that was my dream job. Yes, and I feel very jealous of you. About I this. worked for I believe it was about two and a half years at Long Valley Video. I grew up in a town yes. called Long Valley, oh, and man. there was no Blockbuster. Blockbuster was like two towns over. This yeah. was. The local video store, and it was right Ugh. next to the local pizzeria and the local. Ugh. So it was like the hub. And I, I, I was working there. It was great. Uh, it was video store. It was wonderful. It was a fun uh, job to have. And uh, but I would work, you know, you'd work five, six as much as an eight hour shift. And back then, there was just we had a radio system, right? There was a radio over the, the and it was always on. Right. And so you'd work this eight hour shift. Well, if you ever have the radio on for eight hours, the same songs come on. And so to this day, when I hear certain songs, I get transported back to the video store as if I am behind. There's also movies. When I hear movies, I can remember very, very vividly certain specific movies, what their number was at the video store. That was number 5492 right there uh, (laughs) at where it was. But and it was all like, you know, uh, this is mid 90s video store. Yeah. Right? We had to bring the box up and then we went to the shelf and grabbed the video yeah. and oh, gave it to remember you. Remember those days. And so 
The one that came to mind for me, do you remember in the mid-90s a song called Two Princes by the Spin Doctors? Princess here before you. So, Let's go ahead. Not that one. Yes. And so that yes. uh, this happens to me all the time, especially when I listen to like 90s on <laughs> nine on Sirius Radio. Uh, but the spin doctors came on the other day and I just started belting out. My kids are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm in the video store. I'm in the video store when the spin doctors come on. And there's a bunch of them that do that to me. But it just happened wow. the other day. With Two Princes and the Spin Doctors, I was transported to be 16-year-old me behind the counter at Long Valley Video. Oh, man. That is like one of the best stories you've ever told. Thank you. How about you? I love everything about it. Uh, wow, I feel like I'm going way too depressing now. We, I am, I'm taking us on a quick please sharp do. turn. Please do, please do. Yeah, so, so I, yeah, sorry, a little. I feel like I need to apologize <laughs> sorry in advance, advance for this because <laughs> yours was so good. Mine's going so dark. You know, today is actually the anniversary of my cousin Cameron's Aww. death, and for those people who have heard me talk about Cameron. Cameron was like a brother to me growing up, but Cameron was snowshoe hiking in Crater Lake National Park, Oregon in, gosh, has it been eight years? I don't even know how many years now. Anyway, he stepped out onto a snow cornice and he fell to his death. And at his uh, funeral, we... Uh, his one of his favorite songs with his fiance at the time was a song like a country music song called Wagon Wheel by Darius Rucker. Mm. And after the funeral, we all went to this Irish pub and everybody was like, you know, drinking Irish whiskey and singing songs loud. Mm. And that was one of the songs. And so that's that's a life event song. Yes. For me. It's not even it's a, it's a love song. It's not even about pain or heartache, but it's just a song that takes me back there and sure. puts a smile on my face. It's not, a, you know, of course, the story is devastating, but that's a warm memory that I have of Cameron. And that's what music does for us, right? It brings us back to that kind of stuff. You said it got kind of deep on our Facebook page and on your Facebook page. Tell us some of the tell us some of the stories people shared. Yeah. Okay. So um, here's one. Um, uh, Gosh, there's so many. It's hard to even it's hard to even pick them. But there's a song. Someone talked about the Miley Cyrus song, The Climb, which is kind of that epic, uh, very epic uh, tune where years ago her daughter went through a very dark period in her life. She was in the hospital in ICU, and this was the song that was playing on the radio at the hospital. She is healthier, stronger, and a wonderful mother to a beautiful baby boy now. It still makes my heart break every time that I hear it. Mm. Lots of people had um, hospital songs, like songs that they were in the hospital. Somebody said the song 24 by Switchfoot and marked the death of a good high school friend. Mm. Somebody um, had the song Sea of Victory by Elevation worship they say their first daughter was stillborn they were terrified for their first ultrasound when they were pregnant again her husband couldn't go with her because Hmm. of covid regulations so she was alone god brought this song to my mind while i was in the waiting room and i still have a receipt in my wallet where i wrote i'm gonna see a victory Hmm. i looked at that slip of paper in the in the waiting room before every appointment and i sat there just as i sat there just me and god we did see a victory, and now we call this Ainsley's song. Ainsley is her daughter, who was eventually born. Um, our boss, Marcus Brown, put 10,000 Maniacs, These Are the Days, at high school graduation. You remember that song? Uh, um, they made that. This is going to sound really re- weird because it's prom season right now. That yeah. was our prom song my senior year, which is weird because prom yeah. songs are supposed to be really slow songs. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, but these are the days, 10,000 Maniacs. That was totally yep. when we graduated high school, for sure. Yep. Uh, our our mutual friend from uh, Food for the Poor, uh, Paul Jacobs, put... Um, it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday as like a, I think he said a high school song, but I was like, was that junior high or was that high school? Mm. Um, and then uh, somebody else put the song Beautiful Things by Gungor. Yeah. Gungor. I never know if you're supposed to say Gungor or Gungor, but um, she says she was at a worship night in college and the Lord found her. Even though she grew up on the mission field, she had not surrendered her life to Christ and was lost and fell away. Mm. I realized that night that God made beautiful things out of dust and I was one of them. That song broke me and gave me peace all at the same time. Um, somebody else put Bridge Over Troubled Water. That's a Simon and Garfunkel song. It was played at her mom's funeral. Mm. So we've got lots of funeral songs, lots of hospital songs. Um, really, you know, really, uh, really emotional. People yeah. got emotional. This is kind of a fun one, though. This is Kevin's really good buddy from high school. He says, on the bus ride to a state game. So this is a, when they were in high school, football game. Okay. 
a friend of theirs, this is Kevin's friend too, was like, tell me what you think of this song. I really like it a lot. He handed me his headphones and he played the song Breakfast at Tiffany's for me. (laughs) (laughs) He says, it's such an anxious, unknown feeling that on a day moment like that, uh, so to this day, whenever I hear that song, I'm instantly right back in the bus seat. And then, <laughs> and then this is inappropriate. Then he says, and then I completely fill my pants with urine. I don't, I, nervous for I the game. He just, he's getting nervous for the game. That's what he's yeah. trying to say there. People just walk up behind him and play the song. Well, that's for fun. Uh, I, I feel like how emotional people got there. I feel a little guilty just going back to the video store. But we're all over the place. So we're all over the place. And so uh, thanks for that it's always fun this has turned into a highlight of the week to hear your answers to that songs that bring us back to important and and meaningful places and as always we love connecting with you on social media we are at common good talk on twitter instagram and facebook brian you and i have spent a lot of time talking about the deconstruction movement deconstructors Mm -hmm. etc we've we've tried to look at different takes about uh, those who are deconstructing for our listeners who aren't familiar with that term Can you describe it for us? Yeah, and that's part of the problem right now, right? Like, people Mm -hmm. are having a hard time defining that term. Like, what do we mean by it? Uh, I want to take a positive view of the deconstruction movement. There's, I would call it some some troublesome parts of it. Uh, I think done well and done authentically and at its best, the deconstruction movement is trying to say, what is actually of Jesus— Mm-hmm. And what is just of my church tradition or my denominational tradition that might be unhealthy? Yeah. Uh, and where have we intermingled the two so that I've lived this kind of uh, confused life about what is actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's taking your faith down to the studs a little bit and saying, okay, what are the actual pillars here? What's yeah. the foundation, if you will? And what can I build differently upon that foundation that might look more Jesus, more biblical, yeah. Uh, yeah. less of what I maybe grew up with or bought in over here or whatever else? Uh, I would say on the negative side, deconstruction is a little bit of destruction because I think the point of deconstruction is restruction. Yes. That's not a word. Reconstruction. reconstruction. <laughs> I like reconstruction. That's good. That's good. You that, invented a word today. That was awesome. Uh, reconstruction. So I certainly think that that's the purpose. And so when mm-hmm. it's just throwing out everything, I just think that's destruction, yeah. not deconstruction. Yeah. And I think that's dangerous. Uh, and I also think, like a lot of things, I think deconstruction has become a bit of a niche lane for people to make a, lo- a yeah. name for themselves, make some money. And I think that's yeah. terribly um, unhelpful. So when deconstruction at its best is just trying to say, I want to strip this down to what are the th- what are the ways of Jesus? I, w- I want the- I want to understand this better. Then I think it's okay. Like I don't think mm-hmm. we have to be afraid of it. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really good nuance, Brian, because so often I people hear deconstruction and I think they assume apostasy, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily that. It certainly can lead to that, but it's not necessarily that. And yeah. so I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you made that distinction. Well, we've had different points of view from different pastors. Some well-known pastors have kind of said deconstruction at its, you know, at that negative side, the worst side is, is arrogant almost because mm-hmm. it's like assuming you know better than God or you're more, you're less fallible than other people. But then we've had people on the show who are really like in defense of deconstruction construction. So there's there are various points of view and part of that is because you're right of the semantics of even like what is deconstruction and it is it is sort of on a spectrum. Interestingly, uh Emily McGowan, she has been on the show before. Mm-hmm. She's an Anglican priest. She's a professor of Wheaton College. I had her for a Christian doctrine class in my grad school program. She um, ministers, obviously, to college students, so the next generation, every single day. Mm. And she posted something about Facebook, on Facebook, about deconstruction that I felt like was really convicting. I'm just going to read you the whole thing, Brian, and I would love to hear your response to it. But she said this, it's hard to believe today. Those of us who teach or preach must acknowledge this. Maintaining faith, however tenuous, requires extraordinary perseverance in the face of prevailing cynicism and skepticism. And then in quote, she said, or in parentheses, she says, neither without reason, by the way. Mm. Then she says, many aren't able to do it. I get it. Even as a, quote, professional Christian, I get it. 
I have real affection then for people who describe themselves as, quote, deconstructing or something similar. Very often they're trying to keep faith as best they can, frequently in the face of deep pain. Mm. These, quote, deconstructors are in my classroom and office hours every semester. They want to believe, but are struggling to do so. They're cradling their tiny mustard seeds with tears in their eyes. They're trailing behind Jesus, astonished and afraid. I think my place as a pastor professor is at their side, listening, praying, encouraging, and trying imperfectly to keep step with Jesus without leaving them behind. Mm. Perhaps the opposite of faith isn't doubt, but apathy. I don't really care what you call it. If you're trying to keep faith in Christ and persevere in God's grace, then we are fellow travelers. If Jesus won't break bruised reeds or extinguish smoldering wicks, then I shouldn't either. It's hard to believe today, so let's pray for each other. And then she has a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that says, O God, by whom the meek are guided in judgment and light rises up in darkness for the godly, grant us in all our doubts and uncertainties the grace to ask what you would have us do that the spirit of wisdom may save us from false choices, that in your light we may see light, and in your straight path we may not stumble through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that beautiful? Really, the whole thing is very telling. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was a very positive view of deconstruction, and I want to hold to that. It's especially younger people going, I I want Jesus. Like, I want to hold on to this faith, but I've got this baggage. I'm now at Mm -hmm. college. This is the other telling thing to me, Aubrey. You said she's at Wheaton? Mm-hmm. Like she's painting a picture of of college students that we you and I are Wheaton grads, so we get right. the Wheaton culture. Yes, uh, she is painting a picture, quite frankly, of a different culture than I'm used yeah. to. Of people, yeah. of students, just streaming into her office, going, "I'm I'm really kind of lost. I'm really kind mm. of um, searching here." And and yeah. she paints that, and I would like to sign on to this as as a positive thing because they're. The, uh, that's a positive. That's a really powerful statement when she says the opposite of faith might be apathy. Yeah. So she's saying these kids aren't apathetic. They're showing a desire, but they've got confusion. They've got baggage. They've got abuse stories. They've mm-hmm. got other things. They they look at the world differently than maybe their yeah. parents did, and they're going. I yeah. can't reconcile the two, and they're trying. They're really trying, and I. That's what I want to hold out to for the quote unquote Duke deconstruction movement. I yep. don't know that yep. it's a movement, but we keep talking about it. I I, I want to hold out to their trying. And that yes. it's that that God is bringing new life and new new birth out of these things. Like that's what I want to hold on to. And so I find what she's saying really eye opening, and I also yes. find it pretty encouraging. Yeah, I I find it really encouraging too. And I I know Emily pretty well. Like mm-hmm. she is a faithful woman of God, and so this is coming from someone who is who loves the church and who loves God, God's word and is deeply orthodox. And so I felt like in one sense, this was a, like a prophetic pastoral call to all of us who lead, because it can be, I mean, it can be easy. And I know I've even said this on the air. It can be easy to look at deconstructors and almost roll your eyes. Mm-hmm. And, and especially those of us who have been through hard things, but have held on to our faith, it could kind of be like, yeah, well, you just haven't lived yet. Like you don't know, or, or you're not actually looking to Jesus. Like it can be easy to get judgy, I guess, get pretty like holier than thou pharisaical, right. even in my own heart. And so I think reading this for me was pretty eye opening to go, Wow, what is my what is my role as a right. as a pastor, as a preacher, as an older Christian? Well, it is to keep in step with Jesus without leaving others behind, especially mm-hmm. those who are like they're holding on to faith, they want it, but they're just not quite there yet. And I think the other thing is what might we learn from those who are deconstructing in a healthy way? Where we can together, like you said, reconstruct the church that's into right. what it's supposed to be. I think that's, you know, that anyway, that's an encouraging word for all of us. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated that. Okay, Brian, autoimmune diseases. Do you know much about them? You know, uh, I do because I know you've suffered with autoimmune mm-hmm. diseases. My mom has has uh, battled some autoimmune diseases in that's the right. last decade or so. So I would say before that, knew nothing of them, right? Like I had really no concept as to what it is. After that, you come to learn how many people 
Uh, first of all, how many autoimmune diseases there are. There's so many. Uh, but also how many people you know and love struggle with them. And, right, and right. Yeah, so yeah. And I know they're, I almost said near and dear to your heart. That was way too positive. I know there are <laughs> things that you've had to deal with in your life. Yeah. Yeah, so I have an autoimmune disease called rheumatoid arthritis, which is where my body thinks my joints are like enemies and will attack my joints. Mm. And so that's ultimately what an autoimmune disease is. It's where the body... Uh, attacks even the good parts of itself, thinking that it's an enemy. So like if you have, you know, people have autoimmune diseases that impact their muscles, like lupus is an example of this, or MS is an example of this, um, that'll attack their muscles or their organs, thinking that they're like enemies coming in and they start going after their own body. So for me, it's my joints. For other people, it's different parts of their Mm. body. Skin, you can have autoimmune disease of the skin. The body attacks its own skin. And so anyway, so the point of an autoimmune disease is basically your body is attacking itself. Okay, so you have that image in mind. Lisa Bevere, who's a pastor, leader, writer, like she's one of those like powerhouse Christian women. She wrote something on Instagram that I thought was like spot on and pretty uh, powerful. And I I wanted us to react to it, Brian. She says this. I fear the church has an autoimmune disease. Hmm. She says, the body is attacking itself. We slander rather than talk, hate rather than love, believe the worst before the best, wound rather than heal, curse rather than bless, exclude rather than include, strike rather than turn the cheek, retreat rather than go the mile, cut off rather than reconcile, Mm. speak harshly rather than gently, hide rather than have hard conversations, alienate rather than relate, cancel rather than connect cruelty rather than kindness and then she says galatians five fifteen warns us but if you bite and devour one another watch out that you are not consumed by one another jesus didn't give his life for us to destroy one another mm. i was like a mic drop yeah moment. yeah you know yeah. i think she is spot on with that autoimmune disease metaphor when she's describing the church don't you so i do when you first said it i i have like a i, I kind of push back in uh, in general when people are like they use metaphors of things that people have like, have actual struggles with like mm. the church has an autoimmune or it has cancer or right this. right with that said she won me over as you read that i was like this is a good description just as an autoimmune disease is the body fighting against itself and you want to be like no no you fight with go work with the body right yeah we see this we talked about it yesterday aubrey that uh the disunity that stops evangelism and we talked about that the other day because uh, the body, which is a metaphor for the church throughout mm-hmm. Scripture, the body does feel like it's fighting against itself. It does often feel yes. like we are uh, having these uh, tribal arguments and uh, it's causing us to be off mission and it's causing there to be fracturing. It's causing there to be internal strife and it's causing the world around us to go, why would I want to be a part of that thing? Like, what's the deal Absolutely. with that thing? Uh, and so just as, you know, for you, you could not find relief or healing without getting to the doctor, getting the medication, getting it all right. Yep. The church has to ask ourselves, what is the cure? What yes. is the medication? What is the uh, the the plan mm-hmm. so that the autoimmune disease doesn't continue to spread and do its work. I think it's a great metaphor. Yeah, that's that's actually what I, I have been thinking of since I read this a couple of days ago, because I, you know, just uh, let's go with a metaphor in my own disease, you know, quote unquote journey. It took me like a year of rest, uh, took me years of meeting with doctors and trying to find the right like medication combo Lots of prayer, lots of help to get to the place where now I function very normally. I mean, I have bad days here and there, but my autoimmune disease no longer controls my life like it used to. And so I I think if we're going to stick with that metaphor, like you said, what is the medication that the church needs to bring healing? And it's easy to say, well, it's Jesus. Well, yes, it absolutely is Jesus. I don't want to undermine that, but we are people saying we follow Jesus and yet we're seeing this disunity. So I do think there's something to like, 
we need uh, quote unquote doctors of the church to like help guide us, those who have been faithful leaders for a very long time to help us go back to like humility and what does it actually mean to repent and reconcile? What does it look like yeah. to, to not choose unity above the gospel? We talked about the other day, but choose unity in light of the gospel. Mm. What does it look like for the Holy Spirit to be leading us, not the like uh, forces of this world that are causing disunity? And I think we have to step back to and remember that what we're what we're battling is not actually each other. It's the forces of evil at this work That's seeking right. to cause division and confusion. And you've said this a couple times this week, Brian, and I think it's really powerful that you know what happens when we're you know doing all of this infighting? We're off mission. That's right. That's and so right. of course the enemy wants to get us all focused on ourselves and how much, you know, we're angry at each other about this and this and this. Because then we're not being like Jesus or living for Jesus like we're supposed to. Let me ask you a question. I I, yeah. I, I don't know the answer to this question, but I, I think you'll be able to tell me. Are you ever cured of an autoimmune disease? Or does an autoimmune disease yeah. just lay dormant? And does it yeah. just medicate? Like what uh, is yeah. Help me understand that. From what I know, from my experience and from what my doctors say, is that, uh, no, you go in remission, which like right now I'm considered in remission. But if I began to take, if I began to stop my medication, it would like flare right back up. Yeah. And I know this, I, that might not be everyone's experience, but I have tried to like um, pare down on some of my meds. And as I have, my autoimmune disease is just going, nope, I'm yep, still here. Yep, yep. So I just go, okay. But then there are times when like you've been, you've had these meds for 10 years or so and they do start to wear off. And yeah. so you have to, at that point, like rethink something else. So I don't know what that means for the church. I well, think healing, pure healing can come from the church, but it might, you know, it, it might mean it's until Jesus returns. So the I reason I think. bring that up, let's keep stretching the metaphor and people yeah, might be like, Hey, yeah. too far. We're pastors. We stretch metaphors. That's yeah, what we do. That's what we do. <laughs> uh, it's powerful thought to me to think that it's always there. So mm. uh, we as a church are not going the big C church are not going to, uh, you know, until the return of Christ, uh, yeah. we are not going to get rid of disunity or this autoimmune disease she's describing Mm -hmm. that it has to always be in the back of our minds. Are we doing what's, is it in remission? Are we doing what needs to happen? So it's not here recognizing that once, if you just decided tomorrow, I'm cured, I'm done with my autoimmune disease. I'm done with medication. I'm done with whatever else my doctors have told me you'd be in big trouble. Mm-hmm. And, and the same for the church. If we said, oh, we figured all this out. We are completely unified. We don't have to work anymore. It's going to flare itself back up. So I'm pulling yeah. the metaphor there. I think, That's I good, think that Ryan. works. That's good, Brian. You're preaching. I think it works. Yeah, I think I think that works well. That sort of this this is sort of a picture of that already not yet that we've talked about. That until Jesus returns, we may not experience total healing, but there are pieces of healing we can experience. And now the power of the Holy Spirit and as we actually like embrace the way of Jesus and humble ourselves. So anyway, I thought it was an interesting metaphor. Does the church have an autoimmune disease? I don't know if you know this, listeners, but I have sort of designated myself as uh, Brian's life coach. And I've decided that Brian has That's a call a big on role. his life. That's I know, a, it's a big, big role. role to have. Yeah. I know. Thank you. That's why I designated it for myself. I have a I have a T-shirt and a crown. You are my unpaid life coach. Yeah, I am your unpaid life coach uh, because I believe you have a call on your life, Brian, okay. and that is to minister to those pastors or ministry leaders who are under encouraged because perhaps they. Uh, aren't like the big name celebrities. They don't have the book deals. They're not speaking at the conferences. They don't have an awesome radio show. Like you just named three, th- you just named three things on your, on your resume. I, did. I, did. I was about to say they don't have a podcast. Oh wait, that's on my resume too. But so for the ministry leader out there, who's literally just like faithfully trying to lead their ministry or yeah. their church or their, you know, whatever organization it is, I think there's a call in your life to minister to those who are under encouraged. And so one of the things that we just talked about, if you've missed any of today's show, by the way, this is a plug to go catch up on our podcast. Um, Wherever it is you get your podcast, you can listen to our show. 
For those who are in ministry settings where more and more people are beginning to deconstruct. Hmm. And, you know, we've seen this coming out of the pandemic. We've seen this coming out of the hashtag church two movements. We've seen this as like the culture around us changes in their understanding of gender and identity. There are those within the church that are deconstructing to the point where it doesn't always feel encouraging to the pastor or the Mm -hmm. ministry leader. And you might feel like, is it worth going because the cultural tide is moving too fast and I just can't, you know, I can't answer their questions. I can't keep up with this. I feel discouraged. Would you, because of the anointing on your life, Brian from, <laughs> would you encourage that ministry leader with something? Sure, sure. When we talk about people deconstructing or leaving the faith or leaving your church or whatever else mm, it might be, but yeah. we're talking more about faith issues here. Uh, I think it highlights the fact that big church or small church, we put way too much of the emphasis on ourselves, that we as pastors can be borderline narcissist in this way that we say, you know what? It's about me. I have to save them. I have to do this. There's this little thing named the Holy Spirit, and I say that sarcastically. There is a yeah. Holy Spirit who uh, transforms, who convicts, who encourages my job as a pastor is to faithfully, uh, creatively, passionately point people to Jesus in from Sunday morning, from the pulpit, yeah. but also in our interactions. What the what what the Holy Spirit does in their life is not on me, and so Ooh, just good, as if somebody gets baptized in your church, mm-hmm. the 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 response to that is not, "Aren't I the greatest pastor <laughs> ever?" Look at what I did. No, we celebrate the Holy Spirit's transforming work in that person's life. And and we celebrate the fact that we get to be a part of it. We're like, wow, Mm. that was amazing. In the same way, when someone is struggling with their faith, deconstructing their faith, it's not, woe is me, I'm the world. Like, it's not about you. Uh, But instead, we can pray for that person. We can meet with that person. We can stay in that person's life, stay engaged. I know you've talked in your own church, Aubrey, of people feeling the freedom to ask those questions and ask yeah. those hard questions. I don't think you and Kevin sit back when they ask those questions and go, this is a complete reflection upon us. We have failed them. <laughs> right, we have, right. uh, this is on us. And then when they come back, you don't go, man, we are the greatest pastors. We <laughs> save somebody from the brink of apostasy, right? Like right, it's not about right. you. And right. so allow it to That's hurt good. for them and love them and continue to love them. But uh, let the Holy Spirit carry mm. the weight of what the Holy Spirit's supposed to. Does that make sense? Mm. Oh, Brian, I, that's such a good word. I feel like you're ministering to me and to so many people right now. It's it's not about you, but like not in that terrible way. Like it's not about you. So but it's about it's it's the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing the work yeah. in people's lives, and the best you can do is point people to Jesus. That's Where this really becomes good. difficult is I would we would have to uh, this. I don't even want to say this, but we would have to say the same thing to parents. And you and I are parents. Oh, unpack that. If your kid uh, is super passionate about Jesus, it not necessarily mean that you're the greatest parent in the world. But when your kid, even more painfully, is doubting their faith, questioning yeah. their faith, leaving their faith of their parents, whatever else yeah. it might be, that's not about you. You might have done mm. some stuff wrong. You might be currently doing some stuff wrong or mm. doing some things right. But ultimately, that's not about you. And it should drive you to your knees to pray for your child. Mm that the Holy Spirit would work in your child's life. And it should cause you to have those conversations with your children. Like this was, this one's harder. Like I don't want to even think about my kids are hitting that age where they'll start or or are having those types of conversations, you know, by the grace of God, none of them have rejected their faith, but Mm -hmm. it happens. I know some of the most godly people I've known through my life whose kids are quote unquote off the reservation right now. They are just, they've kind of left the faith and I I can't imagine that pain, but I don't think that's about you either. Uh, And that you can play a huge role in your kid's life. But I don't ultimately think that you should make it about you. That one's harder, though, isn't it? Like, that one's a lot harder. That one's really hard because there is this reality that you are, even with both parenting and church, is that you, you feel the weight of, like, I am responsible for the discipleship of my kids and for the people in my church that I lead. Mm -hmm. 
but I think what you're saying is, but you're not in charge of the outcome. Like you can't control the outcome. You can be faithful to lead your church. Yes. You can be faithful to leave your kids towards Jesus and shepherd them as best as you know how to with the Holy Spirit guiding you. But at the end of the day, the outcome is not your, you can't control it. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily your responsibility. It's the Lord's. And so in one sense, that feels really scary. But I think could also be freeing if we could learn to trust God that like he's yes. working in our kids. He's working in the people in our church and taking them on their own journey that like we are part of, but ultimately it's God's deal. It's God's work. And if we trust that God is a good God, we trust that God has what's best in mind for our children and for those we shepherd. I think in one sense that takes the like pressure off because you can just go, oh, okay, like I can live faithfully and work mm. faithfully and serve faithfully, but God, this is God's deal. This is my deal. And that that gives you a sense, I think, of trust yes. and peace. It lets us take the pressure off of ourselves. Like I said, us pastors, yeah. we have we can have some narcissism in us. It's all about totally. me. It's all about me. And that fuels a lot of pride when things are going well. But that fuels mm-hmm. a lot of despair when things are going badly. Like if it's all about me when my church is doubling in size, then I have to own that it's all about me when my church cuts in half. Yeah. And, uh, you know, wow. you can't ride that roller coaster. There's a, you're part of the reason, but there's so mm-hmm. many factors that play into these things. And mm. even to say with my kids, it's not all about me. Obviously, a large part of it is about me and my wife yeah. and uh, yeah. we're the parents. But right. ultimately, we don't control where our kids' lives go, and we don't control what God does in our kids' lives. And so yeah. that should drive us to pray and to kind of take that perspective. That's what I was going to ask you. So, like, for that pastor or that parent in mind who may be feeling a little bit discouraged, uh, what would you say they should do? Prayer, it sounds like, is a big one. Falling back on who God is. Um, do you have any other sort of like practical things that you do to to remind yourself of what this is all about? Yeah, no, this has been a challenge do? for me to think about because I probably have some of that narcissism in me that says it's all about me. I think mm. it draws us to prayer and it also causes us to ask, what is my role here? Like this isn't to say be completely hands off. No, when you see that person in your church struggling yeah. and they've opened up to you. Go to coffee with them, pray for them, right. meet with them again. Right. And it gets what you and Kevin are doing right now. Like meet with them again yep. and again and again. Just don't layer the burden onto yourself that the outcome mm. is on you. It's, it's not. You're not about the outcome, but dive into the process and That's whether fair. it's kids or whatever else. I think we can own that. This is not a call to just be hands off and go, well, it's not yeah. about me. Yeah. Dive in. That's why you're a pastor. That's why you do these things. But don't burden yourself with the outcome. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. All right. Well, that's another word from All Ministry Matters with Brian Fromm. Brian, thanks for coaching us and encouraging us in our ministry today. At the end of every show, we love to uh, send you home with something encouraging or challenging. And we thought we would ask, you know, just a tiny, like non-important question. And that is, what is love? Baby, uh, don't Brian, hurt me. Hurt me. <laughs> don't hurt me. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, do you remember that SNL sketch where like oh, the dancers? Oh, of course. Yeah. Wasn't that the Good. Night at the Roxbury's? Uh, Chris yes. Farley. Uh, I mean, not Chris yes. Farley. I'm sorry. Um, Chris. Will. Uh, Will. What, Will. <laughs> How are we so dumb? He's like the Will most Ferrell. famous. He's like the most Will famous Ferrell. person in the world. <laughs> Will Ferrell and Chris. I can't remember that Chris. That Chris's last name though. But they just uh, go. Well, anyway, they, they just yeah. they just keep moving their head sideways. Yes. Yeah. Ari, that was the oldest moment we've ever had. Like we couldn't wow. come up with Will Ferrell right there. We are professional speakers uh, on oh, the funny. air. Chris Kattan. Chris Kattan. Chris Kattan. Yes. Chris Cotan. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. All right. What is love? Now, Brian, uh, we've got some godly answers to that from uh, somebody you may have heard of by the name of C.S. Lewis. Mm. But before we talk about that, earlier in today's show, uh, we talked about a, a pretty entertaining, wild, crazy story about a woman who married her cat over in England. You did not feel good about that story. Uh, I did not. I was not on board. I did not endorse that message. Um, 
But now there's been a story from our friend Jim Dennison about people that are marrying fictional characters. And I would like you to talk about that. Yeah, he writes this again. Jim Dennison over the Dennison Forum says the New York Times is profiling a movement called fictosexuals. These are people who consider themselves married to a fictional character, whether a doll, a character in a video game or a similar quote person. One person, Jim likes to use quotes here, who married a doll wants us to know that as artificial intelligence and robotics allow for more profound interactions with the inanimate, the number of fictosexuals is likely to increase. Aubrey, uh, our, 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 our entire society has gone crazy. Well, I, so we had several months ago, you and I talked about uh, Faith Popcorn. She's like a futurist entrepreneur woman. And one of the things that she predicted was in the next 10 years, there will be very norm, like normative weddings to AI. And so we are definitely seeing the start of that. I think, Brian, it, here's the thing. In one hand, that makes me want to laugh and be like, you people are insane. <laughs> In the other hand, I go, whoa. What's going there on? There is some type of longing in people that is leaving, leading them to this yes. really kind of dark and sad idolatry when ultimately what they're looking for is love and belonging that comes through companionship and ultimately Jesus. Like that's, I really think this longing is showing Agreed. us like people have a need for fulfillment and for longing and for something that's outside of themselves. But the idolatrousness in us is pointing us to these very, what I would call bizarre places. Yes. I mean, I just think you're right. Like the world has lost its mind, but if we can step back from that initial judgment, yeah. And go, what is going on in people's souls that is leading them to this? And I told you kind of as a joke, like I always had a crush on Robin Hood, the cartoon fox, like the British fox <laughs> when I was a little girl. But like, I'm not an adult that like fantasizes that I'm married to an inanimate object. Yes, you know? yes. I so would I say want... there's there's two things for me going on here. One is part of this is performative. We live in a culture totally. where, where there's yes. such a high value in standing out. And being different yeah. in this. So yeah. I want to recognize yeah. that as part of this. But also, I do think you're onto something. People going, are there other places to find love? Are there other ways mm -hmm. to find love? Is there other ways to yeah. feel what what we're all longing for? And I, I, we kind of speak of this jokingly because this is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it's going away as, as AI gets more and more right. as these things. These completely ridiculous movies that we've seen about like, oh, I fell in love with Siri or this and that. Right. I do right. think you're going to read some more of these stories and we're that might I say the church might need to deal with this at some point. I, you know, and this is one of those things where like our our freedom of individual expression that what I would call almost the idolatry of I wouldn't call it almost the idol of individual expression is pointing us to like we can express our love and our affection and our identity and our sexuality however we want to and to go to extremes like this is the kind of thing that that allows and even celebrates mm -hmm. i'm guessing this is still a very marginal population yes for sure uh, but i think it's what we're what we you and i are saying is this kind of thing is becoming more and more and more normative mm -hmm. and so how is the church going to respond and i think the beautiful thing about the gospel is we have the answer we have yeah. the answer in jesus we have the answer in christian community we're just going to have to get really savvy as christians and as church leaders about how we're presenting a message of like true love and true belonging compared to this i mean literally false fictional love and belonging mm. Very, very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, Brian, one of the questions that we talked about ask, answering is what is love? And I found a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, and this is on the C.S. Lewis Daily uh, tweet, you know, Twitter page that you can follow. Uh, but they were quoting C.S. Lewis. It says this, love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Hmm. I thought that was interesting because I haven't heard I, I, you know, I know that love is not an affectionate feeling. I think that's the message of the world that you must like be, quote unquote, in love to love somebody that that's actually not love. But I haven't heard love being a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. What do you think Lewis meant by that? Yeah, that's a hard one because albeit for me to critique C.S. Lewis's language, right? But. 
Yeah. I might add one word in there that Mm. I might add love is not only an affectionate feeling. Ah, interesting. Because I don't want to rob it of, especially when I think of love between a spouse or a love between, like, I don't want to be so cold as to be like, Mm. I don't need affection towards my wife. Like, that's not what this is. This is just about Mm. commitment and covenant and that I want the best for her. But it's not only that, you know, we've all learned in, in... uh, if you've been around the church, you know, there's different Greek words for love. Mm-hmm. You know, there's eros and there's phileo and all of these different ones. Mm-hmm. And agape being the greatest. Agape, right. the self-sacrificial love. And I think that's what he's getting at. Like, yeah. if I truly love my wife over mm-hmm. decades, I want her flourishing. I want yeah. her. I'm not. There's not a selfishness there. And that mm-hmm. the beauty of marriage is there's this mutuality that... In an ideal world, if I have that love for her and she has that love for me where she's wanting my flourishing, there's a selflessness. There's an agape love there that begins to mirror or show what Jesus has done for us. And so I guess I would want to say, you know, I want to say it's not only affectionate love, that there's there's other stuff there. And and I guess he's also saying there's not just marriage love, right? There's love for neighbor. There's love. And maybe that maybe that one we don't need the the differentiation. We could just say, okay, there's a sacrifice there. There's this that love shows itself in a desire and a sacrifice for that person's good. Yeah, I love that concept of the other person's flourishing. So that could be your kids, that could be your parents, mm-hmm. that could be, you know, your neighbor, like uh, Brian was saying, it could be your spouse, it could be your best friend. But that, um, you know, no matter what seasons of life come and go, no matter what hardships bring, that you have that steady concern for their flourishing. And I like that he also said as far as it can be obtained, because certainly there are limits to people's flourishing and ultimate good this side of heaven. I, I think that is a it's an interesting concept to think about. Like, are we the people that are in our lives are we seeking their best right. rather than just seeking that up and down emotional feeling? But like you said, but still like affection is an okay thing to want in right. a spouse. We have especially. feelings, right? Yeah, we have feelings. And again, I mean, going back to what love is ultimately, we know what love is because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our down our lives for other people. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.